0: Good morning, you're tuned in to CGSW 90.9 FM, broadcasting from O'Kinstis and the city of Calgary on Treaty 7 land at 18,000 watts. Streaming at cgsw.com, available on Apple Podcast and your favourite CGSW app. Today is February 15th, 2024, and this is episode 177 of the Calgary Almanac. Former Premier Jason Kenney disappeared from public life in late 2022, leaving behind his Frankenstein-UCP party, overrun with far-right social conservatives and Alberta separatists. Today's episode, we speak with Jeremy Appel, author of the book, the new book, Kennyism, that takes a critical lookbook, look back at Kenny's 25 years in politics and the impact of his career on the present day. That's coming up in the third hour of the show at 915 The UCP's Alberta model to addictions recovery focuses on unregulated private programs with an overwhelming focus on total abstinence. Half of these programs and facilities are faith-based. At 8.10, we speak with Ewan Thompson, co-founder of Each and Every, about the problems with Alberta's approach to addictions. And at 8.30, we'll be joined by Alberta View's editor, Evan Ossenton, for a preview of the March issue of the magazine... New music on the show today, including Toronto's Ducks Limited and Winnipeg synth-pop artist Trust, a new release from them. But first, we start the show with Calgary electronic and neoclassical duo Osmanthus. My name is Peter Oliver, and I'll be your host until ten o'clock this morning. You're now listening to Radio Free Calgary. CGSW 90.9 FM going out on a single released yesterday by Ethel Kane. American singer-songwriter, musician, and a producer, that one dedicated to the 30,000 Palestinians killed or Israel's occupation since October 2023. Before that, we started the show with Osmanthus, a project of calgary based duo Laura Reed on violin and Christoph Suita, a synthesizer and keys from their new release Between Seasons We're sitting at -12 this morning it's uh, back to some back to some cold weather maybe just for another day though we're going to be uh, only hitting a high of -9 today with a chance of flurries uh, warming up tomorrow, though, high of minus three and sunshine four, high of four on the weekend, Saturday and Sunday, with lots of sun and uh, similar temperatures into early next week. This show is proudly brought to you by the Establishment Brewing Company, located at 4407 First Street Southeast, in what is known as the Manchester Industrial Area. You can check them out uh, down at the tap room tonight. They've got sounds of the Wallpaper Quartet jazz group uh, starting at 7 p.m. And uh, new beer released February 21st. Uh, Surprise release, uh, something to mark your calendar with. And uh, what do we have? Kolschnite? coming up Friday, November 23rd. You can check out their calendar online and all their amazing beers and beverages. ca. Follow them on my social media EST Brew. And we will kick things along here. Uh, going next to a Chicagoan duo. Ellis Swan and the Canadian well actually not entirely. One is Ellis Swan of Chicago, but also uh, the other half is Canadian multi instrumentalist James Schimple, a dead bandit from uh, Memory 13. This is the title track here on the Palgrave Almanac. was Pyle from Hot Air Balloon, a U.S. trio that uh, released this this EP with the leftover, the remnants, the bits and pieces from their recent LP, All Fiction. That track there only for a reminder. Before that, we had Dead Bandit and the title track from their Memory 13 release, a uh, Chicago and Canadian collab there. We're going to go next to Jessica Pratt with her first album in five years uh, all the way from Los Angeles, California. Uh, Forthcoming album here in The Pitch here on CGSW 90.9 FM.
1: Nancy, Ani, Bonjour,
2: Hello. This is composer Andrew Balfour inviting you to experience Ispichewin, a musical journey bridging cultures and perspectives. It is both a personal journey and a an evocative testament to the transformative power of music. This recording features Calgary's luminous voices with the incredible Jessica McMahon and Walter McDonald Whitebear on flutes. It is my hope that this album deepens our understanding of indigenous storytelling. Ispichewin is available now wherever you listen to music.
0: Calgary's Wisecur there from the Scarecrow EP, and that was the the second track of our last set. It started off with Jessica Pratt from here in the pitch, the first album in five years. She's all the way from Los Angeles, California, singer songwriter, and we've got a uh, a really good. really good list of guests on the show this morning we're going to be chatting in the third hour with uh the author of a new book which just hit uh bookshelves a week or two ago uh, kennyism in case uh you've uh, uh maybe pushed the former premier of alberta out of your memory uh we're going to dig things through um through that past, a, 25, a look back at the 25-year the career of uh, Jason Kenney, who uh, is, I guess, got his political start here in Calgary uh, as an MP, as uh, head of the Taxpayers Federation, um, as a social conservative, and uh, a reformer with uh, the Reform Party, and uh, ended up going out um, kind of in a pile of uh, flame, leaving us with uh, a Frankenstein provincial government UCP party. And uh, we've got uh, Jeremy Appel, the author of Kennyism, this book, to, um, to give us a little um, insight into his look through the life and political career of Jason Kenney. Uh, we'll be chatting with Ewan Thompson, uh, co-founder of uh, an organization called Each and Every um, that's uh, looking out for um, people suffer, suffering from opioid and uh, drug addictions, and uh, pushing for advocating for for um, for people uh, suffering under the housing and uh, drug poisoning crisis right now in Alberta. Uh, we're going to be chatting with him on his piece in the March issue of Alberta Views magazine on. Alberta's uh, model, or what is uh, described as the Alberta model, for, um, for approaching this crisis, which is largely a, uh, a rehab-based model. So looking into that system. We'll also be chatting with the editor of the magazine, Evan Austin for a little preview of the, the whole issue. So, uh, wow. That's, um, that's everything that's coming up. We've still got more music to, to finish up this hour. We'll see if we can get through most of it, all of it. Uh, we'll go next to a Vancouver artist uh, with a new EP, Birdwatcher. This is Kaylee Lee here on the Palgrave Almanac.
3: back in town for Block Heater, and you're lucky enough to have the opportunity to see this multifaceted supergroup live. Moon River makes music laced with sweetly reverberating guitar slides, wonky strings, and simple percussive environments. Check out this trippy and wholly inviting experience Thursday, February 15th at Festival Hall. Find out more info on calgaryfolkfest.com or head to eventbrite.com to get your tickets now.
4: I'm sure But I've been sure before but good times Peril, crisis Oh, singer Wandered out Uncommitted By recovery workers Welfare bringers Who say Sing all joy All joy language In a single word Say Make a living Say, Harold Bird. like a highway still like People, I was trying to write a song called goodbye. Love gets institutional But I don't work for you anymore I was what I could provide Now I'm the border, And I'm the way I say I am goodbye I'm a little dust in the public eye. I am goodbye Now watch the rain. light pour out of me. I'm
5: denied.
6: JSW presents Black History Month featuring Gwendolyn Brooks. Lauded as some of the most influential and widely read poetry of the 20th century, your vast collection of work explores the experiences of Black communities in the United States throughout periods of significant social change. Having a flourish for writing at a young age, you published your first poem at 13 years old, and by age 17 became a regularly published poet in the Chicago Defender. You were the first African-American author to win the Pulitzer Prize for your 1949 collection, Annie Allen, and were the first black woman to hold the position of poetry consultant to the Library of Congress. In 1990, to round off a lifelong project of creating and sharing literature, you became an English professor at Chicago State University. Your illumination of race and gender politics through poetry continues to inform and inspire contemporary readers. Today, Gwendolyn Brooks, we commemorate you. Stay tuned to CJSW throughout February to hear more content celebrating Black History Month.
7: This is the BBC News, every weekday morning on
3: CJSW 90.9 FM in Calgary.
8: Hello, I'm Moira Alderson with the BBC News. The Israeli army says its special forces have raided the main hospital in southern Gaza, in what it's called a precise and limited operation. A nurse in Nasser Hospital described the facility as having been completely stormed. Medical sources say Israeli forces fired into the hospital, killing a patient and wounding several others. Jenny Hill is in Jerusalem. Israel say they have good intelligence that
9: this hospital, one of the few remaining hospitals that actually functions in Gaza actually, was being used by Hamas fighters who had held hostages there. There wasn't so much of an indication that the Israeli forces were going in to rescue hostages. It was really more of a question, we understand,
8: of um, perhaps that there might be bodies of hostages in the facility. A Hamas spokesperson dismissed Israel's claim as lies. A Ukrainian military spokesman has said some of his country's troops are being withdrawn from parts of the eastern town of Avdiyevka to what he called more advantageous positions. The spokesman said getting supplies into Avdiyevka was complicated. One Ukrainian brigade called the situation there extremely critical. James Waterhouse reports from Kiev.
10: At one point, Russian forces were losing hundreds of troops every week as they launched wave after wave of attack at Avdivka, where the Ukrainians have built heavy fortifications after almost a decade of fighting there. Now it seems Moscow is making its size count after cutting off a major supply road over the past few days, leaving defending Ukrainian troops short of men and ammunition. Should Avdivka fall to the Russians, it would be more of a symbolic than strategic victory, but its territory Ukraine is unlikely to reclaim soon.
8: The top official in Byelgorod, the Russian city just 30 kilometres from the border with Ukraine, says five people have been killed in a Ukrainian rocket attack. Video showed a shattered storefront surrounded by debris. The Bangladeshi Nobel laureate Muhammad Yunus says many of his companies have been forcibly taken over. Mr Yunus is credited with lifting millions out of poverty with his pioneering microcredit scheme run by the Grameen Bank, his and Rajan
1: the latest development came weeks after Mohamed Yunus, known internationally as the banker to the poor, was convicted in a criminal case and sentenced to six months in jail for violating Bangladesh's labour laws. His supporters said the case was politically motivated. Mr Yunus said on Monday, outsiders had forced their way into the building housing his firm's offices and locked out staff. He said police refused to take action regarding the apparent takeover. The Bangladeshi Prime Minister, Sheikh Hasina has a long-running feud with Mr Yunus. She accused him of sucking blood from the poor and his Grameen Bank of charging exorbitant interest rates.
8: BBC News. South Africa says two of its soldiers have been killed by what it described as indirect mortar fire in the east of the Democratic Republic of Congo. They're the first fatality since troops were deployed in December to help Congolese forces battle M23 rebels, widely seen as backed by Rwanda. There's been a surge in fighting in recent weeks. A judge in the U.S. state of Georgia will weigh misconduct allegations today against the prosecutor leading an election subversion case against Donald Trump. Fannie Willis is accused of an improper relationship with an attorney she hired to work on the case against the former U.S. president. She's admitted to the relationship but denied it compromised the integrity of the trial. New figures released by European football's governing body, UEFA, have revealed that last season's Manchester United squad was the most expensive ever assembled in the history of football. The report found that the Premier League team's players for last season's campaign cost a combined $1.5 billion in transfer fees. Athletics Kenya has announced that the great distance runner Henry Rono has died after a short illness at the age of 72. Amazingly, Rono never competed at an Olympic Games, but enjoyed one astounding run of form. Julian Bedford looks back at his life.
10: Over the summer of 78, Rono set world bests at four separate distances from 3,000 to 10,000 metres. But if his talent burned brightly, the flame was short-lived. He did set one more world record in 1981 when, as rumour has it, he awoke from a drinking spree with a hangover, ran that off and then, for good measure, eclipsed his own world best. But alcohol curtailed his career. He said he remembered little of the eight subsequent years. As he put it, he climbed the highest mountain before falling to the bottom of the world.
8: BBC News.
7: Hello, this is Julie CJSW ninety point nine FM in Calgary. Broadcasts the latest world updates from the BBC at seven, eight, and nine every weekday morning.
0: CJSW 90.9 FM, that was a track off the new Halado Negro release, Phaser, uh, Colors Del Mar, a uh, fantastic new album, much anticipated on on this side of things. Good morning, actually. Uh, This is the second hour of the show of the Palgrave Almanac here coming at you live from the McEwen Hall Student Center broadcasting at the University of Calgary, 18,000 watts on Treaty 7 land here. My name is Peter. I'll be with you until the end of the show today at 10 a.m. Lots of great guests coming up, uh, but very excited to bring on our first guest uh, for today. Ewan Thompson is uh, one of the co-founders of each and every an organization that aims to reduce uh, preventable drug poisoning deaths. Uh, coalition of, of local businesses. Um, good morning, Ewan. How, how are you doing today?
2: Doing all right, Peter. How are you?
0: Uh, pretty good. Uh, keeping warm out there, dodging uh, dodging the slippy spots outside. Um, staying positive, doing what I can. Uh, great to great to finally have you on the show. Um, uh, you've been doing lots of work in the community for a long time. Maybe you could start off by actually telling us a little bit more about your organization, each and
2: every. Yeah, thanks. And thanks for having me here today. Um, Each and every is a coalition of businesses, as you mentioned, started in Calgary and, and Edmonton, in um, particular in the brewing sector, which I work in. And um, it was a pretty easy pitch to make to craft breweries and, you know, coffee shops and so on. Um, businesses that are effectively in the legal regulated drug market that run supervised consumption sites effectively that uh, that provide safe supply for their customers um, all these kind of buzzwords that you hear around harm reduction and drug policy, uh, have, have been in place in some drug markets in Canada for, you know, uh, going on a hundred years now since we had alcohol prohibition, for, um, for that brief stint in the, you know, 1920, um, 1918, 1920 region. So, um, yeah, we, you know, we started there, but, uh, there's really like a dozen industrial sectors now represented by each and every, uh, across the country, almost every province and territory. And these are businesses that can see that the policing and carceral solutions to drug policy that, that we've been trying to implement, um, are just not working and, and in fact, making the situation much worse as the trust kind of erodes among the, their neighbors, uh, people who use drugs in their, in their neighborhoods and so on. Um, they, uh, they, they are turning away from services and, and rejecting, um, some of these systems that are ostensibly there to help them. Um, so uh, I think that um, a lot of these businesses want to see new solutions and, and new practices taken on by cities and, and provincial governments. Uh, so that's what we're trying to push for.
0: Very very interesting. Uh, so this piece in the March issue of Alberta Views magazine, just uh, hitting newsstands and, and mailboxes, uh, is about what's wrong or asks the question, what's wrong with rehab in Alberta? And a lot of the conversation today and, and even on a national level it's gotten picked up, is the, the idea of this Alberta model uh, to, to the uh, addictions crisis, the drug poisoning crisis. Um, can you explain a little bit what the idea of this Alberta model is uh, from, created by the UCP government?
2: Yeah. It, the Alberta model has been presented to the public as an innovative solution to drug poisoning. Um, it, it is not that it is, it is a doubling down of, um, really traditional, um, conservative and, and largely Christian faith-based practices, um, that, that really moralize drug use and, and often create moral panics around, um, around it as well. Um, that, uh, Implement a lot of these old school um, practices like, you know, 12 step meetings and and that sort of thing and and ensure that people um, don't have as many options um, as as we would typically want to see in place uh, under harm reduction measures like supervised consumption sites, like access to safe supply um, to separate people from the illegal unregulated drug supply. Um, and and so as a result of the adoption of this Alberta model in Alberta, people have really had their options eroded. Um, the The science, the the evidence is extremely clear that that most of these practices are are causing more deaths. They're not solving the death crisis, um, and uh, not that not that we should be you know uh, restricting access to to uh, quote unquote addiction treatment. But um, that people should have the option to voluntarily access whatever services they see fit for their own health and their own survival in this crisis. Um, so, yeah, I, I have been studying the Alberta model since it was really announced in Alberta in around 2019, 2020. And um, I, I write about it a lot at drugdatadecoded.ca where, um, I'll investigate things like, uh, the piece that I put out yesterday was about sober, sober, living facilities and the way that they charge people sobriety deposits. Um, these are not things that, uh, any tenancy act would normally allow, but because people who use drugs are, are so marginalized in their society, uh, we allow these sorts of things to take place, um, under, you know, provincial non-regulation, um, I think uh, th- this is just one good example of how the Alberta actually, uh, b- the Alberta model actually operates in practice. You,
0: you mentioned uh, about um, the the data and statistics on things. What is the the current picture of the crisis in Al- Alberta um, it, w- with all the I think noise and ups and downs and, and going through uh, the last what is it <laughs> four years of COVID pandemic? I think it's been very difficult for for most people to keep track of what's
2: actually happening. Yeah. Um, right around the time that the COVID pandemic broke out, um, there was a massive rise in drug poisoning deaths. And this was attributed to several factors, partly people being disconnected from frontline health services, but partly there was a massive increase in the toxicity of the drug supply as borders uh, seized shut and, um, and the, the typical traditional drug supply routes were disrupted. So um, in Canada, we've had a, a big pivot towards uh, manufacturing fentanyl inside our borders. Um, the fentanyl supply has completely replaced the heroin supply now in most parts of Canada. There there effectively is no heroin left. Uh, and a lot of physicians you'll hear talk about, you know, speak sort of longingly about the old days when heroin was available. And they were seeing many, many fewer uh, overdoses in their daily uh in their daily rounds, so um, 2020 kind of came and went, and and there were really no solutions being put on the table in Alberta that that would mitigate that toxic drug supply. Um, the government was continually continually uh, doubling down on funding for uh, new treatment facilities, you know, places where people could uh, seek abstinence, but not necessarily seek those harm reduction measures that that are actually going to help address the toxicity of the drug supply. Um, and uh, this has really persisted through the last few years. Uh, it, it has been paired with an actual eroding of access to those supervised consumption sites, the safe supply, um, which is uh, really just like regulated prescription based um, versions of the drugs that people are using anyway. And um, as a result, uh, 2023 is going to be the worst year on record for drug poisoning deaths in Alberta. Uh, despite a lot of the sort of politicization of this topic and and uh, political opportunism that our government has has uh taken on to you know kind of make this case that the Alberta model is working it, it really is not and the numbers don't lie um more people are dying now than have ever died before of drug poisoning in Alberta
0: there between the the approach that the the UCP came in and replaced in 2019, and, and I think the one that you advocate for, your organization advocates for, and this current UCP Alberta model, air quotes, uh, there seems to be sort of a, a discrepancy in the framing of the problem, one as uh, uh, an addictions crisis, a mental health and addictions crisis. And another as a drug poisoning crisis. Are these like contradictory framings, or you know, is one um, misrepresenting the
2: actual problem? That's that's absolutely what's going on. Um, so we are not in an addictions crisis. We are in a drug poisoning massacre, and uh, framing it as an addictions crisis is is really effective for maintaining those um, sort of traditional values oriented measures uh, like pushing people into abstinence-based treatment centers, um, warehousing people away in these facilities uh, so that they can be removed from the public based on their uh, quote-unquote kind of health problem, their addiction. Um, so framing this completely as as addiction um, serves a really important political function and really empowers the police to take whatever measures they deem fit in order to to reduce the public visibility of drug use um, which in many cases is really a catch-all term for visible poverty. So um, this has been really powerful for the UCP under their law and order governance structure that they've brought in under, especially under um, Public Safety Minister, Mike Ellis. Um, th- they are very keen to be able to uh, continually manage populations of people that, that they see as undesirable in public. So um, this is, you know, this runs completely counter to the evidence. Um, for example, forcing people into treatment puts them at considerably higher risk of drug poisoning uh when they exit that facility. Um, on the converse side of this, um busting people for drugs, so having police go in and seize drugs from people also puts those people at considerably higher risk of drug poisoning. So effectively all of the measures that are being implemented under the Alberta model are increasing the risk of death for people.
0: You you mentioned can you explain a little bit more about this uh, this policy of, of forced rehab for people, because I think that's also something new that maybe um didn't really get the full attention of the public.
2: Yeah, this was a real hot stove for the provincial government um, last year where uh, they they did roll out a a full policy um, plan called the Compassionate Intervention Act. It has not been put into practice yet, has not been passed in the legislature, but uh, it suffered so much public backlash that they they ended up walking it back and not pushing it forward in the last legislative session, um, which was, I think, a real public win. Um, the Compassionate Intervention Act would have effectively empowered families, police, um, the courts, uh, even doctors and um, and and health practitioners to be able to compel people into addiction treatment centers. Uh, this would have been really effective for these these privately run organizations that that need to keep their beds filled. Um, at these treatment facilities, uh, but it would have been a real disservice to the people who, had, who were being pushed in involuntarily into these facilities because as I mentioned before, it puts them at higher risk of drug poisoning um, upon exit from that facility. It, it also um, creates a massive amount of distrust with anybody that gets um, pushed into this sort of thing because uh, they will then likely disconnect from any whoever it was that pushed them into that in the first place, as well as any kind of associated affiliated health services that, that they might otherwise access.
0: You, uh, you mentioned some of these uh, recovery facilities are, uh, are faith-based. And I, I think there's a, a, a stat that jumps out in this article. You wrote um, that half of Alberta's treatment beds are explicitly faith-based facilities um, focusing on uh, a model uh, of, of total abstinence. Um, can you give a little bit of a lay of the land of, of the different uh, recovery facilities that exist in Alberta? You know, ownership, are they for profit, are they not for profit? Um, and how maybe they're all regulated or
2: not? <clears throat> yeah, they are largely um not-for-profit at the moment, but they are privately run. So there, there is this sort of public funding of private organizations that's been happening in Alberta. We've been seeing it really emerge in healthcare as well. Um, but uh, regardless of whether they're, they're for-profit or not-for-profit, they are um, really not subject to the same regulations that you'd see under, under a publicly run model. Uh, there are a handful of publicly run addiction treatment facilities in Alberta but those are dwindling away pretty quickly especially as the new model really takes place Um, some of these are fully corporatized fully for-profit entities like Edgewood Health Network which is running the first operation um, this uh, therapeutic community kind of just a a larger addiction treatment facility effectively 75 beds um, that just opened up in Red Deer last year and and Edgewood Health Network is is a company with um, with its wings really spread across the country now, um, from Ontario to the west coast, they're operating facilities, and um, you know they uh, they obviously have a profit motive in in having their beds filled at all times. So a forced addiction treatment model is very appealing for a company like that. Um, you know the the not for profit ones uh, are still. You know, finding ways to to create revenue. Um, when I was writing about these sort of sober living facility deposits, uh, this is a great way to squeeze extra revenue out of uh, tenants who would otherwise, you know, have better protections under the Alberta Tenancies Act. Um, they don't have those sorts of protections because they're living in transitional recovery facilities. So, um, you know, there's lots of little loopholes that exist here that can um, enable these organizations to squeeze more and more revenue, more more and more profit out of uh, the tenants and out of the, the residents that are attending these facilities.
0: For those just tuning in, I'm, I'm chatting with Ewan Thompson. He's the co-founder of an organization called Each and Every, and he's written in the March issue of Alberta Views magazine on what's Wrong with rehab uh, in this Alberta model. These these new recovery facilities. Uh, what data do we have to know that they are working or not?
2: We don't have any data to, to know that they are working. Actually, and I think that would shock most people in Alberta um, that we've really we've committed three hundred million dollars a year in Alberta to this model now. And, uh, it's all based on, uh, either flimsy or no evidence whatsoever. Um, the Alberta government does not share information about outcomes or evaluation metrics, um, concerning these facilities whatsoever. So we don't even know how many people are on the waiting lists for them. Um, not only that, it actually gets worse. The Alberta government has handed over the, um, the data to a private recovery facility that exists in BC called Last Door Recovery society now last door is also the organization that runs alberta recovery conference and and the broader recovery capital conferences that exist across the country which really serve as a as an important forum for uh, for drug war propaganda um for recovery propaganda that that the alberta government has really seized onto uh, within this alberta model that they've developed um so you know, this this organization um, has taken a a couple of sole source contracts totaling nearly two million dollars from the Alberta government to develop what's called the My Recovery Plan. Now, this is an app. Um, in which the data for people entering these recovery facilities and programs is stored and then kept privately by Last Door Recovery Society. The Alberta government itself has specifically told me through a Freedom of Information request that they don't even have access to this data. So um, Alberta government has now effectively privatized the patient data um, for these, uh, you know, quote-unquote health measures that are being taken um, by Alberta Mental Health and Addictions. So you would expect
0: with, uh, with, with, with a recovery uh, program or, or model or, or system with all these different centers operating that you would be monitoring um, whether people relapse um after recovery, whether there are uh, overdose deaths of, of people who, um, I guess, graduate or, or complete uh, a, a visit at, at one of these facilities, are you saying we don't have that data?
2: Not only do we not share it, they don't even seem to be uh, keeping that data. It would be pretty easy for the government um, knowing that somebody came into a recovery facility, an addiction treatment facility, using their personal health number, um, and then that person wound up in an emergency department with an overdose uh, or drug poisoning a, a few months later Th- those sorts of things would be very very easy to track this requires zero infrastructure to build um it already exists within our system effectively but uh, they just simply do not want to know the answer to that because um, the international research is really clear that, that it's not going to help none of these measures are going to help reduce drug poisoning deaths unfortunately um the the way to you know address drug poisoning is is, Basically, through medication-based approaches, this this is the evidence-based approach. So things like opioid agonist treatments are great. Methadone is, is fantastic. It's 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 really evidence-based. It's been used for many decades, um, um, and and more and more as people are are hooked on the fentanyl supply, that um, that they get access to regulated fentanyl to, to as that starting low barrier starting point for them. Um, if you know if they want to move on to something else, get onto methadone later. That's great but but start with the drug that they're using anyway. Uh, we do not offer that in Alberta. And in fact, the government has has really whittled that down to nothing um, from, from what was a, a pretty bare-bones program in the first place of people being able to access regulated hydromorphone, which is dilaudid, um kind of a heroin-strength opioid. Um, that was available under the NDP government for a while. It, it, it was effectively eliminated last year by the UCP government.
0: What do we know about the role that affordable housing
2: plays in this crisis? I mean, in Calgary, uh, I've I've done some calculations showing that unhoused people are 1000 times higher risk of dying of drug poisoning than housed people. Uh, we have completely abandoned unhoused people to the drug poisoning crisis in this province. And it almost seems to be intentional at this point, um, just sort of a conveyor belt out of housing uh, due to lack of housing affordability, almost entirely people, people do not fall into houselessness because of drug point of uh, drug use. They fall into houselessness because they can't afford a home or because they're running away from something, uh, in, in different uh, settings, you know, domestic violence or otherwise. And, um, so, you know, when they do, when people do end up on house, the, the risk skyrockets of, uh, of dying of a drug poisoning death, because, um, they uh, don't have safe spaces to go. In Calgary for a city of 1.5 million people, we have one supervised consumption site that does not offer inhalation services. I think another thing that most Albertans would be shocked to hear is that um, more far more than half of people who are dying of drug poisonings nowadays are not dying from injection drug use. They're dying after they smoke, after they inhale the drugs. Uh, we do not provide inhalation services for anybody in this province anymore since the Alberta government shut down the Lethbridge site, the only one in the province back in 2020. Uh, so we need to we need to start talking about supervised inhalation sites alongside all of this.
0: And I understand there uh, there's debate. In, in Red Deer, uh, I think happening today with the, the City Council there and the UCP uh, potentially shutting down a, a facility. Can you
2: tell us more about that? Yeah, um, last year, Red Deer City Council vo- voted wholesale to adopt uh, the Alberta model. So they were voting to you know um, provide more More power to police, more power to addiction treatment centers, uh, more power potentially to compel people into addiction treatment and so on. And then, uh, became the first city to, to welcome one of these, um, 11 therapeutic communities into their city. Uh, so these therapeutic communities that I mentioned before, just really larger addiction treatment facilities, uh, very conventional methods, nothing, nothing innovative about them. Um, but they, uh, are, um you know showing up in in different cities now and and regions uh, first nations as well around the province um red Deer got the first one and um what they're doing now is potentially voting to find a way to uh remove the only overdose prevention site in town from uh from that downtown area where many many unhoused people uh, rely on this in particular unhoused people uh, housed people as well do use supervised consumption sites overdose prevention sites um but they're particularly leaned on by unhoused people who really don't have other safe spaces to use drugs. Um, as we know, uh, using alone is the number one predictor of, of experiencing a drug poisoning. So whatever we can do to keep people from having to use drugs alone will, uh, massively reduce the risk for those folks. Um, that's why overdose prevention sites are so valuable and right Red Gear today is, is undergoing a public hearing to potentially, um, get to the point where the where the city council can justify dispensing with this one overdose prevention site that that is leaned on so heavily by uh, by the population around downtown red deer
0: overall for for alberta what do you what what does success look like to you and to your organization it, it, it's really
2: about opening options for people um everything should be voluntary everything should be done um, with the consent of of people who are trying to access services. Uh, We should not be forcing people into these narrow-minded, moralistic frameworks of drug use uh, that that we think that uh, they just shouldn't be using drugs, they shouldn't choose to use drugs in the first place. People use drugs for all types of reasons. Uh, Most of us drink alcohol, um, but nobody's really moralizing us about that. Nobody's forcing us into addiction treatment. Um, and, uh, you know, we can use alcohol safely at home, uh, knowing that it's a 5% beer or a a 13% bottle of wine, uh, alcohol by volume with no poison in it. There's no methanol there. That's going to turn us blind or or drop us dead on site. Um, the, the same sort of thinking needs to be applied to other drugs, so that people can use those safely. There was a time just a hundred years ago where this was true, um, but really under the Controlled Drugs and Substances Act that that evolved starting in nineteen oh seven, the the whole nation of Canada has has really just uh, been converted into this idea that that certain drugs are bad and some drugs are okay. Uh, we'll regulate those ones and anybody that wants to use those bad drugs should just be left to the mercy of of a completely unregulated and toxic drug supply. So um, yeah, I think that we, we, you know, a perfect outcome of this really is just that, you know, people have voluntary access to treatment centers if that's what they want. But if they don't, they have access to safe regulated supplies of drugs. Um, and they have safe spaces to be able to use those drugs if they, if they choose to do so. Um, and you know, our education and, 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 um, management of people's basic living conditions like housing, like food security are, are looked after so that, um, people aren't simply, you know, using drugs to, to manage their, the pain of their daily existence with, which I think is pretty high for a lot of folks right now.
0: Ewan, thanks so much for, for taking the time to come on the show this morning. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me, Peter. Once again, I've been speaking with Ewan Thompson. He is a co-founder of Each and Every. You can find out more about them at eachandevery.org. You can also read his piece in the March issue of Alberta Views magazine, What's Wrong with Rehab? The Lack of Accountability in the Alberta Model for Dealing with Drug Use.
11: With its cunning ways, when I close my eyes.
0: little track there from uh, little misty nowhere land a montreal folk-based sophomore release we started the hour off with helado negro a new track from phaser and i'm joined now by our second guest on the uh, choo-choo train of guests on the show today evan Tin is the editor of alberta views magazine and we've got here hot off the press the paper's still warm Uh, The March issue of Alberta Views magazine, New Perspectives for Engaged Citizens. And uh, Evan joins us from Calgary this morning. Good morning, Evan. Richer about
12: the uh, heat of the
0: paper. Nice and melty (laughs) off the press. Yeah, uh, I appreciate that. And it comes in like a... An uber eats bag you know they got to mm. keep it warm for you you pay extra for that but it's worth it right yeah. the pages just flip themselves almost um, well this is a, a a great issue and uh as as you may have heard we were just speaking with uh you and thompson on on his feature story on what's wrong with he- rehab i mean that was um it, it is a big centerpiece of of this issue and, and you wrote about it um In the opening remarks of this issue, with uh, "When Faith Kills," um, how how do you see all this kind of wrapping together in this issue?
12: Oh, yeah, it's. uh, I'm really grateful to Ewan uh, for just for the advocacy he does around um, harm reduction, and 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 I'm I'm grateful that he was willing to do this uh, to take a look at the rehab. Model for us, uh, and specifically, we were trying to, to to think about what has not really been written about a lot, or what has not really been covered so much. And the question we kept coming back to is um, this this rehab model that the current government is uh, is so enamored with. And I'm not saying there's not a role for rehab as well, but th- this model that they're enamored with, and they're and they're very dismissive of harm reduction. Uh, what is the evidence that it even works? And it turned out there isn't really. Uh, a whole lot of evidence, or if there is, um, you know, it's, uh, it's not being made available to the public. So, um, you know, Ewan looked into this, and, and he asked these rehab providers, you know, what are you required to tell the government? And it turns out that not a whole lot, and some pretty key information that, you know, I'm sure you guys talked about this, but for example, how many people maintain sobriety after leaving these facilities at three months, at six months, how many even stay alive? And so, um you might ask well these are the kind of things that would just be pretty basic requirements from the government you know we're not just going to give you hundreds of millions of dollars unless you can kind of show us uh that what you're doing actually works um but I I don't know I try not to get too personal in in these uh in these profiles of ministers but I found the minister of mental health and addiction this new guy pretty hard to take seriously pretty hard to uh you know kind of give the benefit of the doubt to um you know he comes in he's brand new okay so this is the guy i don't know how old he is he's not that old he comes into the job his experience as a politician is that he drove jason kenny around in the the big blue truck i mean he was an assistant to jason kenny in ottawa and he was an assistant in the in Jason Kenney's sort of rise to power in Alberta. This is a good uh, this is a
0: good tie into the Jeremy Appel Kennyism interview coming up okay. at 9:15. Um And I mean,
12: <laughs> you know, that's 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 fine. He's his experiences as a sort of a young um partisan, I suppose. Um if I were made Minister of Mental Health in Alberta today, I mean, I don't know anything about this stuff. I'm not an expert at all, but the first thing I would do is I would find who are the experts who've been studying uh, you know, drug policy, harm reduction, rehab, uh, the opioids crisis, who's been studying this for their entire lives, who's got 30, 40, you know, years of experience. Um, and I would ask them, you know, for their, their best ideas. And I would sort of have the humility to say, look, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm, this guy's maybe in his twenties or thirties and has no experience whatsoever in any of these fields. Um, this is, this is pretty important. Like literally thousands of people are dying every year in Alberta and over the last, I don't know, decade, I want to say like 10,000 people. It just it's – it's a crisis. It's an epidemic. Um, and we have a guy who comes in and he immediately dismisses experts as, you know, what do they say, uh, talking heads and uh,
0: – Oh, uh, uh, social justice warriors, I think the, yeah. the quote was in here. I mean I, w- I will correct you that I think he does have some experience. He did chug a beer in the legislature um, yeah. most recently.
12: Yeah, if you want people to give you the benefit of the doubt, maybe don't go on Twitter calling everyone who disagrees with you like a complete moron. Don't go into the into the legislature and then you know proudly boast about how you're chugging a beer. And I mean, this is this is a guy who doesn't seem to take his job seriously. He doesn't seem to take the responsibility he's got very seriously. So it's it's hard not to look at this man and not be angry. And uh, so yeah, I, I don't I don't love. Um, I don't love coming down this hard on on someone, but I feel in his case, it's justified. And I I think that this government has a record now. They've got five years now of overseeing mental health, uh, of overseeing addictions, of overseeing the opioids crisis. And I mean, if you just look at the data, even if I liked them, even if I supported what they're doing, if you just look at the data, the death count is rising every year and they are not... um, you know trying uh, they're, not, they're not saying well okay let's let's try different things. They're saying we know what works, and we're gonna go double down on that triple down on that and they're meanwhile, they're closing the things that the evidence points to the harm reduction services they're literally closing them down, and death the death count is rising. You just think at some point do you not even just look at your own evidence and and question what you're doing so
5: mm-hmm.
12: yeah, it's a pretty it's a pretty dark uh pretty dark place we've found ourselves in Alberta, and it's being overseen by a guy who doesn't, in fairness, doesn't really seem to know what he's doing and isn't interested in talking to experts.
0: Mm. Well, it's uh, certainly uh, an important read and an informative read, and it was uh, great to to chat with you in there. Uh, Also in this issue, I I noticed the dialogue, uh, you know, not too far off, these uh, different recovery businesses and stuff. We have the the question, which I guess I've never really heard debated, um, Mm -hmm. maybe ever, (laughs) is – is should charitable donations be tax deductible? Should you get money back for giving to a a charity on on your taxes? Um, Yeah. Tell us about this issue and and who you selected and chose to to debate the the two sides.
12: So Tracy Smith Carrier, who is a prof out at Royal Roads out on the island, is arguing that no, uh, charitable donations should not be tax deductible. Uh, and Justin Smith, who's a prof out at Wilfrid Laurier, is arguing that yes, charitable donations should be tax deductible. Yeah, I, 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 I wouldn't call myself an expert on this, but I did find this very interesting, and I did think it it raised a lot of questions. Uh, not just the sort of the 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 sort of main questions. It seems like one question, but it's maybe many. I mean, should we be giving people an incentive to donate to charity as a society because there is a cost to us in in the foregone tax revenue right and that's been calculated and it's it's not an insignificant amount it's many billions of dollars a year that we do not collect in taxes because we're giving that back to people because that was the incentive for them to donate um to charity so you know as a society is that something that we uh should do and that's a, a financial question as much as it's an ethical question um But then the next question that came up in this is, does that actually incentivize people to donate to charity? And that's, I I feel a little unresolved on this. I think they both uh, presented evidence that kind of seemed to contradict each other a little bit. but, um, But yeah, does that actually incentivize? Tracy Smith Carrier was citing research that says the motivation people have, the more powerful motivation people have is altruism. They want to do something good. They want to do what they think is the right thing. They want to support a good cause. When you tell them you need to be incentivized to do that, it actually has a negative effect on their interest, their willingness to give. Um, so, is that actually an effective uh, policy? You know, to to incentivize people? Does it actually give? If assuming this is a good thing in the first place, does it actually incentivize people to give more, or does it do these um, actually incentivize people to give less? And then the third question, and probably the most important one, and I think that's one that Tracy Smith Carrier did get into a little bit, and 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 Justin maybe didn't uh, didn't go there uh, at least in this dialogue. But that is the question of you know uh, should we even be encouraging the charitable model in the first place? Are these not are there not services that would be uh, better funded through government, better funded collectively by all of us, uh, rather than saying okay, well we're going to leave it to you know Peter. It feels uh, out of the kindness of the heart that he's going to donate money, you know, to cancer research or whatever else. Is that not something that is all of our responsibility to do? And we shouldn't just be saying, "Well, let's leave that to let's you know the rest of us will save money, and then those kind-hearted oh. people or well-meaning people who who want to can donate." But but isn't it not all of our responsibility to address these problems? And does charity not put that? Uh, responsibility onto the individual and take the responsibility off of all of us, and that's uh, that's to my mind that's the more interesting question, well, uh, or even the question of
0: uh, of that distribution. Sorry to cut you off of of no no um, the the choices maybe be, being driven by marketing campaigns or whoever has the most fun um, mm-hmm. like race to recovery thing. Uh, Exercise where you get to go on a long bike ride or a long run and and solicit donations from your friends and family and coworkers and things uh, as opposed to having a more high-level view of where the funding needs to go in society. And, uh, you know, in talking about this, um, this made me remember a 2014 uh, piece in Alberta Views magazine, The Problem with Charity by founder jackie flanagan uh that i was just able to google here and it, okay. it, it did bring up many of these questions um for instance um like are, are charities um are they alleviating the symptoms or are they actually addressing the the root causes of of social problems
6: mm-hmm. and
0: um i think that's a really good discussion and i'm glad to see it um coming up again
12: yeah, and thank you for yeah pointing out there is that piece available in our archives by Jackie about charity. I mean, it's such a sacred cow in our society, charity. like Nobody says a negative thing about charity. To give to charity is just understood to be a good thing. To to be a charity, to do charitable activity is it's just unquestionably seen as a good thing. But there are the few uh, people who pop their heads up occasionally and, and take a good, critical look at that and, and really all of that into question and I mean you brought up just one thing just the inefficiency of the charity model I mean let's say somebody has a really good marketing campaign uh, this particular charity and so they get lots of money some other charity they may actually be addressing a more important cause but their marketing campaign isn't as good so they get less money than the other one so it's and meanwhile how much money is going in is being spent on that marketing campaign you know that's money that could be going to cancer research that's instead going to advertising and marketing to try and get donations for cancer research meanwhile maybe there's seven or ten different charities addressing the same cause and so that's seven different CEOs and seven different boards and seven different staff and seven different buildings and there's a lot of duplication and inefficiency in the charity model so it's definitely worth um, looking at more critically. Well, I, I certainly can sleep
0: better at night knowing that the outcome of these issues hinges on marketing bros, Evan. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I want to yeah. talk about the uh, the museum's guide in here. So um, All right. there are a whole lot of museums, I understand, in Alberta, and you've put together a, a really fantastic sort of uh, roadmap and overview of of what they've they've got going on. Can you talk a little bit about um, this uh, section of the magazine this month?
12: Yeah, well, you know, long-time readers will know that almost every month we have a guide that looks at some aspect of our culture. And so, yeah, it's museums in this month. And so we have, I don't know, 10 pages of museum listings. And, you know, we've been doing this a while. So every year I read about some of the same museums and go, oh, yeah, I've got to get out to that one or, oh, that one sounds, uh, you know, like a place that I've been you know, hoping to get to for a while, but, but, and then every year there's something, there's a new one that kind of jumps out at me. And this year mm-hmm. I have to say, there's this one, I think it's in Pinocchio. It's called the Ford austell Museum. We have a little picture next to it and it's a, it's a museum <laughs> with artifacts. From the care it's from, from, mental hospitals, essentially it's artifacts of, of the care Ooh. of people with mental illnesses uh, from an era that was, Shall we say not particularly enlightened, maybe? So we just have a picture of something called a transorbital lobotomy mallet, uh, which I don't know what that is, and uh, I think it would be interesting, uh, horrifying to find out. Um, it, it is also the suggestion, and and uh, I didn't I didn't write this, I just uh, proofed it, but that hmm. uh, these sort of collections are not common. That you're not going to find a lot of collections of uh, you know uh, medical uh, artifacts from the care of people with mental. Health issues uh, from the maybe the 50s or the 30s. I'm not sure, but anyway, I just think it could be a little bit like a, a little shop of horrors. This museum and in, uh, in uh, Fort Worth, I you ever get out there. Like, you know, go for yeah. museums still open.
0: They still go for. Anything? I
12: believe so. We do try to. I mean, we have to. We have to make a cutoff because if we didn't, there'd be you know 500 museums. So we went with accredited museums. Mm, museums mm, belong mm, to mm, this. Mm. Uh, this organization and have certain minimum standards. And I don't think... <laughs> like not track- minimum height standards? Yeah, <laughs> I'm not sure the Torrington Gopher Hall Museum is accredited or meets these minimum standards. We have, we have mentioned it in previous years, but I think yep. we had to draw the line at some point and we just decided to go with accredited museums that reach a certain kind of standard.
0: Okay. Uh, last one I'll throw you here, at you here. Uh, what the heck is going on in Chestermere?
12: Uh, I I couldn't tell you it's uh so we, yeah we profile a riding in every issue and that's the one we looked at this month is Chestermere Strathmore uh, just east of Calgary and yeah the UCP government has removed a number of members of council uh which is I don't know if it's unprecedented maybe not unprecedented but it's certainly unusual rare and so yeah Tazio Richards our associate editor went out there and spoke to some people and did a little bit of poking around and that's what he's he's written about is uh the kind of internal governance battles i guess within that riding. uh i i certainly couldn't summarize it it's uh
0: is it it's maybe a provincially run alberta's first provincially run municipality
12: well i don't know it's, the first. it's certainly <laughs> it's certainly unusual what's going on out there and uh and uh yeah yeah i don't think this story's done yet either so
0: Okay, well this, this might be the baseline <laughs> for when when things took a, a turn that we we reflect or we go back to to, to see where it all began at one point. Um, yeah,
12: I, I I do I would say too, this writing has been interesting just from a kind of conservative Civil War standpoint. I don't know how much of that or if any of that uh spilled over into this, but uh, this has been a place where yeah, conservatives at the provincial level have been really at each other's throats. Um, I don't know if you remember Lila here the former MLA for this area, but um, and some of her own run-ins with her own party. But yeah, this is a place that maybe not a lot of people give a lot of thought to politically, but it's been uh, pretty contentious over the last little while.
0: Yeah, it's, uh, it's maybe worth a drive to Chestermere one of these days.
12: Just to see the political... Uh Controversy. yeah.
0: Just to take a cruise around. Um, well, thanks so much. Any, anything else you want to touch on, actually? Before before we go out, uh, I think we we covered a lot. This is a really great issue, and uh, I'm looking forward to reading the rest of it.
12: I have nothing further to add.
0: Well, oh. well, oh, actually, I did mention. I did see there's a there's a whole list of book reviews, and I think um, you know, just coming out of the back pages, the final uh, finishing off. Uh, Kennyism, Jeremy Appel, who will be speaking with the author of that, uh, new book, uh, 915. Um, there's definitely a lot of books that caught my eye here that, um, that I think are worth looking into. So, uh, anyone, uh, looking for a new material, definitely grab this month's issue of Alberta View Magazine.
12: Since you gave me the chance, I will make a quick plug for the Mm. crossword because it's uh, <laughs> are our second one. We've been, we started it with 2024, and this is our, our second one. And the theme this time is people who are from Alberta that you might not know are from Alberta. And I shouldn't say too much more without, uh, you know, at the risk of uh, perhaps giving away some of the answers, but people you may not realize are from Alberta.
0: Wow. Um, I don't see any spaces here long enough for Nickelback
12: uh um, unfortunately but. they are known to be from Alberta well, would be people oh, i'm not, from, i'm no good at like, this already are not from Alberta. <laughs> yeah, well they, are, they don't qualify
0: uh great to have you on the show evan and um, i can't wait to read the rest of this magazine uh, we'll i'm sure we'll we'll be in touch again soon
12: I, I hope so thanks peter
0: once again i've been chatting with evan ostenton editor of Alberta Views magazine, you can uh, reach out and grab the latest issue, the March issue, hitting newsstands now. And if you don't subscribe, you can head online to albertaviews.ca and uh, get these coming straight to your door, hot off the press. Keep it locked. We've got another great hour and uh, more guests coming up on the Pau Almanac.
13: My people down with sandpaper They're building malls and
12: This is the BBC
0: News every weekday morning on CJSW ninety point nine FM in Calgary.
14: Hello, this is Julie Kandler with the BBC News. The Israeli army says its special forces have raided the main hospital in southern Gaza. Medical sources say they fired into Nasser Hospital, killing a patient and wounding several others. A nurse described the facility as having been completely stormed. From Jerusalem, here's Jenny Hill.
9: Hospital corridors were filled with smoke and panic as medical staff rushed to help their patients. Israeli forces say their raid on the NASA facility, one of the few functioning hospitals left in Gaza, was a precise and limited operation. They'd warned civilians sheltering at the clinic to leave yesterday. A spokesman for the Israeli Defence Forces said that Hamas had held Israeli hostages in the hospital and that bodies of some of those hostages might still be there.
14: Hamas dismissed the allegations as lies. The Israeli military says it's carried out airstrikes in south Lebanon that have hit dozens of Hezbollah targets. On Wednesday, Israeli strikes killed ten civilians, half of them children, in the city of Nabatea. Israel said it was responding to rocket fire that killed an Israeli soldier. Al Haj Mohammed is living near the newly hit building.
1: Our house faces the building, and late at night we were up when we heard two impacts. We heard the sound of two shells hitting. We went outside and saw smoke. We saw ambulances coming and going. Getting closer to the road, we saw that the building had been hit by two shells.
14: The Bangladeshi Nobel laureate Mohammed Yunus says many of his companies have been forcibly taken over. Mr. Yunus is credited with lifting millions out of poverty with his pioneering microcredit scheme run by the Grameen Bank. His own Rajan.
1: The latest development came weeks after Muhammad Yunus, known internationally as the banker to the poor, was convicted in a criminal case and sentenced to six months in jail for violating Bangladesh's labour laws. His supporters said the case was politically motivated. Mr Yunus said on Monday, outsiders had forced their way into the building, housing his firm's offices and locked out staff. The Bangladeshi Prime Minister, Sheikh Asina, has a long-running feud with Mr Yunus.
14: A Ukrainian military spokesman has said some troops are being withdrawn from parts of the eastern town of Avdivka to what he called more advantageous positions. He said getting supplies into Avdivka was difficult, but Ukraine was using a backup route. Russian forces have been making gains in and around the shattered town, which they've been trying to capture for months. A Ukrainian soldier told a BBC correspondent the army was running out of munitions.
15: I was wounded this morning when we were storming an enemy position. Shrapnel wound. It's very tough going in Abdiivka. We don't have enough of the weapons we need.
14: World news from the BBC. Russian health officials now say at least six people have been killed and more than a dozen wounded in a Ukrainian rocket attack on Bielgorod, a city just 30 kilometres from the border. In an earlier attack on Bielgorod in December, Russia says 25 people were killed. That triggered a mass evacuation. Reports from the Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo say government forces are being reinforced around Sake, the scene of intense recent fighting. M23 rebels have been trying to take the town which controls roads into South Kivu province and the regional capital, Goma. Many inhabitants have fled, and pro-government militia fighters are reported to have looted their houses. A judge in the U.S. state of Georgia will weigh misconduct allegations today against the prosecutor leading an election subversion case against Donald Trump. Fannie Willis is accused of an improper relationship with an attorney she hired to work on the case. She submitted to the relationship but denied it compromised the trial. Doctors in South Korea have held street protests in major cities criticizing a plan to boost the number of medical school places by 30%. They say medical schools cannot absorb so many new students without compromising the quality of their training. Athletics Kenya has announced that the great distance runner, Henry Rono, has died aged 72. Rono never completed competed at the Olympics, but enjoyed one astounding run of form. Julian Bedford looks back at his life.
10: Over the summer of 78, Rono set world bests at four separate distances, from 3,000 to 10,000 metres. But if his talent burned brightly, the flame was short-lived. He did set one more world record in 1981 when, as rumour has it, he awoke from a drinking spree with a hangover, ran that off and then, for good measure, eclipsed his own world best. But alcohol curtailed his career. BBC
14: News.
7: C.J.S.W. 90.9 FM in Calgary broadcasts the latest Hello, world updates Canada from the BBC, the BBC at News. 7, 8, and 9 every weekday morning.
0: Good morning. You're tuned in to C.J.S.W. 90.9 FM. We are broadcasting here live from McEwen Hall Student Center at the University of Calgary. And we are uh, brought to you by the Establishment Brewing Company located at... Uh, 4407 First Street Southeast in the Manchester industrial uh, in Manchester Brewing and industrial area. It's sort of like a straight out of a beer commercial from the 90s. It's amazing, just steelworks and sparks flying, and uh, a nice bike path in and out. And uh, this evening, starting at 7 p.m., we've got uh, the Wallpaper Quartet a jazz uh, group performing "No Line No Cover." At starting at 7pm, uh, right in the tap room with all those delicious award-winning beers. Of course, recipients of the Alberta Brewery of the Year Award. Lots of things happening on uh, their events calendar. You can check out establishmentbrewing.ca. We've got uh, Kolsch Night uh, next Wednesday. We've got, or no, next Friday, the 23rd. Uh, new beer releases, surprise beer releases next Wednesday. We've got Retro Radio Trivia for those trivia uh, people out there. Uh, Thursday, February 29th, you can check them out on the social medias. EST Brew is their handle, and uh, pictures of nice, refreshing beer, even if uh, even if it's not time to have one. We are sitting at minus 11 degrees in the city of Palgary today, uh, heading up to a high minus 9. Chance of flurries just enough to sort of dust the ground a little bit for atmospheric uh ambient effect uh, going to be heading to a high of minus three tomorrow so warming up a little bit with sunshine and even warmer on saturday high of four uh, two on sunday and uh low single digits in the positive though uh into monday tuesday wednesday next week uh up on deck i've got uh Jeremy Appel, a, uh, a journalist here in um, actually in Edmonton in, in the province of Alberta, I guess, here in that sense. Um, a new book out by him, uh, Kennyism, Jason Kenny's Pursuit of Power. That's coming up in uh, just under 10 minutes, so keep it locked. We're going to start off this hour of uh, the final hour of the show with a new track from Future Islands, Giving the Ghost Back, here on the Gray Almanac.
16: my life.
3: takes a lot to graduate from university and the best just keep on working do you know a u calgary graduate who deserves to be recognized an alum who inspires and illuminates the world around them by making it a better place let it be known by nominating them for one of six categories of the u calgary alumni association arch awards help university of calgary graduates leaders and innovators receive the recognition they deserve send in your nominations by march 3rd at ucalgary.ca slash arch awards
0: Welcome back to the Palgrave Almanac on CGSW 90.9 FM. We heard uh, a track there from La Securité uh, from their new release. Uh, that was a track waiting for Kenny, uh, appropriate um, to uh, to our third and final guest on the show today. Uh, a new book has been uh, published uh, called kennyism jason kenny's pursuit of power it's by jeremy appell he's been covering politics in alberta since 2017 his works appeared in cbc news canada's national observer jacobin ricochet the Tai, breach maple canadian jewish news and he also has a newsletter the orchard uh, which you can find on substack and he joins us uh, this morning good morning jeremy are you there Uh oh, I may have lost you. Calling Jeremy Appel. And uh, we might have to uh, duck out uh, on another track uh, until we can get Jeremy back in the channel. All right. Uh, We're gonna keep uh, take a little uh, breaky break here and uh, and uh, pause things until we can get back uh, connected with reconnected with Jeremy. Uh, Sit tight. We got some more tunes from La Sécurité here on the Palgrave Almanac cjsw 90.9 fm another banger from la securité and their new release stay safe i know that album makes me feel uh super safe just listening to that and uh we are back and uh, we are reconnected with our third guest for the show today jeremy Appel um has been covering politics in alberta since 2017 uh his works appeared all over uh including uh, cbc news Canada's National Observer, Jacobin, Ricochet, Tayyip, Breach, Maple, Canadian Jewish News, and you can also check out his newsletter called The Orchard on Substack. He lives in Edmonton, and he joins me this morning to chat about his new book, Kennyism, Jason Kenny's Pursuit of Power. Good morning, Jeremy. Morning,
7: Peter. Uh, good to be here.
0: Yeah, great great to have you on. Um, it seems like, and I mean, this is sort of right at the, the front uh, of the book, no matter who you talk to in Alberta, you know, whether they're kind of on the left or on the right, nobody really misses Jason Kenney. And I know for me, um, I was able to read this book, which which just launched a couple weeks ago, and it was a little bit of a hesitation of like, do I really want to read and revisit all this stuff? But I'll say that, you know, once I, I picked it up, it, it was really hard to put back down. So why did you write a, a, a book about Jason Kenney?
7: Well, I think Jason Kenney was one of the single most influential conservative politicians of my lifetime. I mean, I'm, I'm 33. So uh, essentially my entire life, he's been involved in Canadian politics in uh, pursuing a particular vision of uh, what it means to be Canadian uh, and Albertan, of course, um, either either in electoral politics or from the outside uh, my entire lifetime. And I would say, save for obviously Stephen Harper and uh, Mike Harris in Ontario, uh, I would say that Jason Kenney was... Yeah, one of the most uh, influential politicians in shifting the entire frame of debate in Canadian politics rightwards.
0: Mm-hmm. And there, there's you know a well-known uh, concept of of Thatcherism, uh, and you've titled the book Kennyism. Um, is, is there more to it than just a, a clever book title, or, or is this actually really a, a thing?
7: Well, I definitely think it is its own thing. Like, in part, uh, Kennyism is a Canadian version of Thatcherism or Reaganism. But I think there are some aspects to it that I would say are unique to Jason Kenny. First among them is the way that he used the, the, the sort of framework of Canadian multiculturalism to pursue uh, a very exclusionary approach towards uh, inclusion. Um, which I know is, is paradoxical, but he, he, the, the inclusion that he promoted was a conditional one, right? When he was uh, sort of Harper's point man on uh, ethnocultural outreach, he reached out to all these communities that had previously been written off as outside of the conservative fold. Right, like uh, various immigrant communities, the Chinese Canadian community, Indo Canadian community, um, etc., cetera, the Jewish community. And he cultivated conservative elements within these communities and was showing up to their events. And um, so it, it was a very inclusive approach in the sense that it didn't matter what your background is, you were invited in to this modern conservative party that uh, was the result of the merger of the Canadian Alliance and PCs, but it was only insofar as you accepted the sort of uh, ideological preferences of that conservative movement, right? So it, 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 it was uh, inviting to some, but exclusionary for others, um, and the other uh, aspect I think is unique to kenyism is the the, the the sort of moralistic zeal he pursued his political project with, and just the outright verification of anyone who stood in the way of this political agenda hmm. well, just like to you really saw in Alberta with the the anti environmentalist uh, crusade he launched in the this you know, Pluto Notley Alliance that was treated almost as this like foreign occupation of Alberta.
0: It's very, really interesting, and, and you you go back to his days as an early MP. Uh, I think, as we mentioned, his career spans uh, twenty five years going back, and I I, I think it, it's interesting because I got a chuckle just cracking open the book. Um, Just the table of contents, I'll I'll read through to give listeners idea. It it starts, culture warrior, tax layer, the snack pack, weaponized immigrants, which I think is kind of what you were touching on there, big blue pickup truck, waging war on the public sector, burning down the house, hint, uh, climate, uh, education for the few, rejecting harm reduction, the plague, the fall. Give us a a sense of like how you, you know, it's 25 years in politics is like, uh, you know, many generations, a lot happens. It's it's a long time. How did you choose sort of what to focus on and and where to begin things in telling the story about him?
7: Right. So the the book is lopsided in that it tracks, right, a 30 year uh, plus political career if you include... Uh, his student activism at the University of San Francisco, and um, but the book focuses really on the six years he was in Alberta politics when he returned to run for the leadership of the PCs in uh, 2016 to his downfall in 2022. And now the reason I did that was was twofold. Uh, first, that's what I'm most familiar with. That's what I covered directly and I sort of had a first-hand uh, account of. But secondly, this was also the only time where you could say he was fully in the driver's seat, right? Like, in, in the Harper government, I mean, Harper was in a notoriously tight ship. And Ken was given free reign to sort of Uh, turn citizenship and immigration and then later employment and then defense, which I don't really get into much, as sort of his own fiefdom. But he was only able to do that insofar as he was ideologically uh, in sync with Stephen Harper. But here in Alberta, the buck stopped with him. And um, that is... And of course, that's where his downfall occurred. So I think that was... With a more multifaceted analysis, not, not taking a break from the sort of chronological approach of the first half of the book, and then sort of going from um, policy area to policy area to talk about what he did from his uh, sort of anti-labor, anti-public sector um, policies to the climate to harm reduction, and then it kind of goes back to uh, chronological order when uh, we talk about the pandemic, and then, of course, his downfall, uh, which I originally thought would be the same chapter as as the pandemic, but then I realized that that was a whole other um, narrative on top of his mismanagement of the pandemic, was how it um, manifested itself uh, in terms of his political fortunes. And then Brian Jean's comeback and Daniel Smith's comeback mm-hmm. and uh, take back Alberta.
0: For those just tuning in, I'm chatting with Jeremy Appel, author of the new book, Kennyism, Jason Kenny's pursuit of power. Uh, Jeremy, I, I guess y- y- you talk about his, his downfall and, and, there being, you know, a fair bit of maybe revisionism going on in the media in the aftermath trying to explain um, what happened with this politician. And I, it, You know, it's interesting. It's been said before, um, you know, Prentice walked into the province and everyone kind of um, treated him like he walked on water and it seemed like he'd be in power forever. And that didn't last long. Same thing happened with Kenny. Uh, of course, very different stories of, of what happened. But what do you sort of attribute to Kenny's downfall without maybe spoiling too much of the book?
7: Mm -hmm. Well, throughout Kenny's career, um, one major uh, through line of Kennyism is using this language of populism that you see going back to his days with the Canadian Taxpayers Federation speaking on behalf of the people, right? The masses um, to Justify policies that were fundamentally elitist in nature. And at first, I mean, no one bought, you know, when Kenny came back to Alberta and he slapped on a cowboy hat and drove around rural Alberta in his big blue uh, Dodge Ram, no one bought that he was actually this, uh, you know, salt of the earth cowboy Alberta populist but they didn't care for talking about the base of, of what became the UCP, right? Which was the base of the wild rose. They didn't care insofar as he could defeat the NDP and roll back. It's, uh, you know, reforms on, on climate and on labor. That was all well and good, right? And in, in insofar as he could do that, people, uh, kind of embraced this faux-populist stick, But when the pandemic happened, that was when these fissures really opened up. And, and, and he's really, because uh, um, uh, not only was he using the language of populism to support a fundamentally elitist project, but he himself has this very elitist disposition Right, like I, near the beginning of the book, I quote uh, Raheem Jaffer, I spoke to uh, Kenny's former caucus mate in the conservative party and and he you know he and Kenny talk still every now and then, and he likes the guy, but he was saying that Kenny has this disposition where not only it's not enough for him to be the smartest person in the room, you have to know that he's the smartest person in the room, right. And so there's certain arrogance, I think, that really came clear during the pandemic, um, and it became most clear when he was facing his leadership review, and then that audio leaked of him calling uh, you know, his party base, a bunch of lunatics and extremists who have fringe viewpoints. And, I mean, if you're a hard Alberta populist, who supported the Wild Rose before, then supported the UCP and then came COVID and you were saying to yourself, what's with all these restrictions? I mean, to you, he sounds just like Trudeau, right? That that there's this fringe element with unacceptable views that um, uh, doesn't represent um, who we are as as a society and but these are the very forces that he cultivated when he returned to Alberta and he put on that cowboy hat and he drove across the province in that big blue pickup truck so um, I, I I think that the, the major reason for his failure was that he had nothing but disdain for uh, his own base of supporters
0: very interesting you, you speak of the the merger of the, the Wild Rose Party and uh, the PC Party of Alberta, which became the, the UCP party, which he sort of um, you know did the impossible and, and, and merged together and uh, this party ultimately you know pushed him out and and ended at, at least his career as, as far as um, as far as we know today in, in politics. Um, but what do you see as the major or major, um, I guess, uh, remnants or marks that he's left on politics, but sort of like uh, um, you know the province and, and Canadian and provincial society here? Because I feel like you're in this book, you're you're, he, he, you're arguing that he he left more of an impression.
7: Yeah, I, I, I think he played a major role in, in, in shifting the terms of debate in Canadian and especially Alberta politics rightwards in narrowing the, the horizon of political possibility. And I think you see that now in. Um, most evidently with uh, Kathleen Ganley's campaign in the the NDP leadership race, and and of course in Rachel Notley's unsuccessful efforts to defeat Danielle Smith last year, where um, the NDP have accepted the the premise that uh, yes, Alberta needs to have the lowest taxes in Canada, right? Um, they they've taken this defeatist approach, right? I, I mean, in in the last election. Rachel Notley promised to increase corporate taxes, but they would still be lower than they they would still be the lowest in Canada. And, I mean, you look, the NDP took the corporate tax rate from 10% to 12%, introduced a progressive income tax rate. Kenny rolls back the corporate taxes to make them even lower than they were before the NDP came to power at 8% where they are now. And then not least promising to increase them, not back to what they were before, Kenny, but to 11% to ensure that they're still the lowest in the country, that Alberta remains this outlier with this uh, extraordinarily low uh, tax regime. And now you have, and she promised to freeze income taxes, which was a bit of mixed messaging, I think, that really uh, confused a lot of people. Um, now you have Kathleen Ganley, who appears to be the front runner for the NDP leadership, uh, with all the endorsements she's uh, getting, saying that she's going to cut income taxes now. For, for low income people, so there, there there's this there's this c- consensus now that that like Margaret Thatcher uh, created in England, that in the UK I should say that there's no alternative that we can only tweak around um, this regime of low taxes and trickle down economics, and that. Also, this acceptance that, yeah, Alberta is an oil and gas province and oil and gas is going to be um, our major industry uh, for the foreseeable future, right? I mean, the the party didn't, the NDP didn't talk about climate change in the last election, right? Uh, they were boasting about building pipe, building the, getting the Trans Mountain Pipeline built, which never mind that it's over budget. Like vastly over budget, but also it's probably going to be the last one. So why boast about that and not look towards the future and offer a positive vision? And then on the federal uh, level, of course, the 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 regime that uh, Kenny and and Harper built with citizenship and immigration, where immigration was tied to what immigrants can offer. uh, ruling class what they can offer employers is matched with this very um draconian approach towards refugees that trudeau um reversed the 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 most excessive aspects of it like cutting uh extended health care for uh asylum seekers and um creating this two-tiered system for asylum seekers based on which country they uh, came from. But you see now with the um, the contrast between how we've brought in Ukrainian refugees with open arms, and rightfully so, and how we're criminalizing Palestinian refugees from Gaza before they even arrive here, uh, forcing them to fill out paperwork that immigration lawyers say they've never seen before having to list every job they've had since they're 16 to list any like injuries they have like even like bruises and explain how they got them and then the israelis have to approve their application to come to canada so this is again a very uh very this is an approach towards immigration and refugees that is exclusionary as it is inclusionary, if you fit the right criteria, or if you don't.
0: You write a little bit about, um, and I mean, you touched on the point right there that um, progressive parties have kind of uh, boxed themselves into the little um, sandbox that, that Jason Kenny uh, gave them to play in that's uh, more far to the right. What do you think progressive parties um, can learn from looking back at what Kenny did and what do you think they need to do?
7: Well, I think Kenny does provide an important lesson for the left in his ability throughout his political career to maintain a set of principles. And there are principles, whether you agree with them or not, like I don't, and I'm sure you don't, and most of your listeners don't. But he had a set of principles, and he was able to bring them uh, to the mainstream discussion by sticking to them and picking his battles, right? So abortion is, of course, something he remains opposed to, right? He uh, a, a relatively recent interview he did with the Daily Telegraph, he, he was talking about how Canada um, has no uh, abortion law, that's the Wild West for abortions, and that we need to do something. But it became clear to him through his years in the Reform Party and the Alliance in getting this, Um, merger between the alliance and the PCs through the finishing line and then spreading the party's appeal to Eastern Canada and to the suburbs in particular was that talking about abortion wasn't going to help the broader project, right? That when Harper came in, it became clear they need to focus on certain things that they can win people over on. And that was um, you know, neoliberal economics, right? Reducing taxes, reducing the size of government, uh, criminal, this harsh criminal justice regime, and these, uh, um, with that, these uh, immigration policies that were much more, um, that did let in a lot of immigrants, but were much more restrictive in terms of what types of immigrants they were letting in, right? So, it's not that he changed his his views for the sake of power it's that he learned which views to emphasize and which to de-emphasize and sort of uh took a piecemeal approach right i mean if kenny could criminalize abortion i'm sure he would have but He accepted the political reality that that wasn't possible at the moment. But here are all these other aspects of this um, political agenda that was very libertarian when it came to uh, offloading the responsibilities of the state onto the private sector and onto individuals, but very authoritarian when it came to sort of imposing uh, this vision of social order. Um, that he wanted to. And so I think that to, to counteract this, the left needs to uh, have its own version of Kenyism in a way and, and, and not sacrifice its principles for electoral pursuit, but to focus on how it frames issues and which issues it focuses on that it can win on. And I I acknowledge that's easy for me to say here uh, talking to you from my car, Um, but I I think it can be done. The problem is that the right has so much more resources than the left, right? That wealthy people are going to be funding these right-wing initiatives um, as they become increasingly, increasingly further to the right. Um, And uh, the donor class for progressives are uh, much more centrist and much more incrementalist and take this sort of liberal uh, approach that I'm, I'm criticizing of just kind of responding to each and every outrage from Danielle Smith or Pierre Polyev as it happens without this broader social vision that it's trying to create. Um, but ultimately, that is something that, that needs to be done because otherwise we're just going to be following um, the right in inching closer and in, in closer to um, the, their preferred vision of society. We need to push back a bit, but we need to be smart about how we do it and with, again, a, a clear... Or end game in mind of the sort of society we want to build
0: well very interesting and it's um, it's a, a great re- read with a lot of uh, really good perspectives and um, I, I think <laughs> having paid attention particularly over the last four years um, there has been so much going on it's, it's almost impossible to, to keep track of and remember everything and this was one way to sort of jog those brain cells and help sort of, um, tie a bow around it all. So, um, I appreciate, and I think many others will appreciate, um, having this book to sort of take a, uh, a 30,000 foot, uh, view down on, on what happened through, through Kenny's career.
10: Awesome.
7: Thanks for having me, Peter. Uh, Great to talk to you.
0: Yeah. Uh, Thank you for joining us, Jeremy. Uh, Once again, I've been chatting with Jeremy Appel. He is the author behind a new book on Jason Kenney's Pursuit of Power called Kennyism. It's out on Dundron Press, and uh, you can pick it up at your favorite bookstore.
3: It takes a lot to graduate from university, and the best just keep on working. Do you know a Calgary graduate who deserves to be recognized? An alum who inspires and illuminates the world around them by making it a better place? Let it be known by nominating them for one of six categories of the UCalgary Alumni Association Arch Awards. Help University of Calgary graduates, leaders, and innovators receive the recognition they deserve. Send in your nominations by March 3rd at ucalgary.ca arch awards. Are you ready to break some barriers? Momentum is an inclusive and supportive nonprofit that provides life-changing learning to Calgarians on lower incomes. Learn how to build a business, manage your finances, or get started in the trades with their no-cost and low-cost programs. Build lasting gains in your workplace skill sets and personal finances. For more information, visit Momentum.org and contact their welcome team. Momentum, life-changing learning, gains that last.
15: The CJSW Friends Card is your guide to over 150 independent and locally owned businesses across Calgary. Every day, we highlight a different local business that you can visit with your card in hand. Today's featured friend is Yoga Sarana. Yoga Sarana is yoga for everybody. Yoga Sarana are focused on the inclusion, community, fun, safe and accessible yoga practice. They have classes with certified trained instructors available for all skills levels for everyone. Enhance your health and fine balance with Yoga Sarana. Find them inside the Crystal Palace at 622 Edmonton Trail Northeast in the Crystal Palace. Use your friend's cards to get 13% off, excluding workshops and registered classes. Get your friend's cards today and check out the full listings of friends at cjsw.com slash friends.
0: going out today on some ducks limited all the way from toronto ontario thanks for tuning in to the show today remember you can pick up you can pick up the audio clips of the interviews on today's show the whole playlist and the whole podcast on the cgsw app it's super handy and i give it two thumbs up we'll see you next time keep it locked to cgsw 90.9 fm here in palgary
17: Listening to CJSW 90.9 FM broadcasting out of Calgary, Alberta, at the University of Calgary campus radio station located on Treaty 7 land. I would like to take this opportunity to acknowledge the traditional territories of the people of the Treaty 7 region in Southern Alberta, which includes the Blackfoot Confederacy comprising the Siksika, Pekani, and Kaina First Nations, the Tsutina First Nation, and Stony Nakoda, including Chiniki, Bearspa, and Good Stoney First Nations. The city of Calgary is also home to Miti Nation of Alberta, District 5 and 6, I would also like to know that the University of Calgary is situated on land adjacent to where the Bow River meets the Elbow River, and that the traditional Blackfoot name of this place is Mo Kinstis, which we now call the City of Calgary. Who
18: do I call if it ain't you? Tell me who to call if it ain't. In circles in my I've been chasing secrets in your heirloom. Let me do what I do, guys. Slow down, let me talk to you. Don't no. tell me about your worries, I ain't staying till the afternoon. I like you in proximity, but now that's so far from the truth. I love you from a distance, now I can't even stay close to you. But who do I call if it ain't you? Tell me who to call if it ain't you. I've been placing circles in my bedroom. I've been chasing secrets in your airlines. Who do I call if it ain't you? Tell me who to call if it ain't you. I've been facing circles in my barrel. I've been chasing secrets in your airlines. Calculating all the aftermath. Now when Emma says a menace in my mind, But protagonist and all my drink is sealing all my doubts. I need healing in this drought. I've been singing to the ceiling, learning how to live without. Uh, I hear you calling my name. We had one mate. There really no one to blame. Uh, I should've came on blame. I trust you, but I was a brave. If I could've called you, I'd tell you I need you. I wouldn't know what else to say. But who do I call if it ain't you? Tell me who to call if it ain't you. I've been pacing circles in my bedroom. I've been tracing secrets in your heirlooms. Who do I call if it ain't you? Tell me who to call if it ain't you. I've been pacing circles in my bedroom. I've been tracing secrets in your bedroom.
19: Tienes